I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. So I'll tell you, one of the most frequent uh, comments or suggestions I've gotten from friends and other listeners since I started the podcast uh, over a year ago was, what about alcohol? What about booze? Uh, you haven't done any episodes on that, and that's got to be, you know, in some respects, uh, one of the, you know, biggest drugs of them all. And so I thought the best way to have a first episode that addresses the issue of alcohol would be with Professor Edward Slingerland, who published a book uh, last year called Drunk. The subtitle is How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Now, Edward is the Distinguished University Scholar and Professor of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia in Canada, with adjunct appointments in Asian Studies and Psychology, and he's the co-director of the Center for the Study of Human Evolution, Cognition, and Culture, and director of the Database of Religious History. He's also a sinologist, which means he's not an expert in sinuses, he's an expert in China, um, and that's a lot of 
his more academic writing, although this is quite an academic book in its own way as well. So I just thought he would be a wonderful intro. So Edward, thank you so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Thanks for having me. So Edward, what would be the elevator pitch, the basic argument of your book in a few sentences? We've long been told that our taste for alcohol and other chemical intoxicants is an evolutionary mistake. And that's not the case. In, in fact, uh, there are a host of both individual and social benefits to intoxicant use. And these benefits have paid for the obvious costs. So, so alcohol consumption is costly. It's, it's bad for our bodies. It can lead to all sorts of social ills. Um, but the taste for alcohol has remained in our both genetic and cultural repertoire because of these various uh, individual and social benefits that have been crucial in allowing human beings to make the transition from small-scale hunter-gatherer societies to these the large civilizations that we live in now. And so, you know, far from being a, a byproduct or a mistake, intoxication has been at the center of civilization um, for as long as, as human beings have have been doing anything in, in an organized fashion as a species. Let me just say to the audience that of all the books I've read uh, uh, for this podcast, this has to be easily the most enjoyable read. It's not just scholarly and thoughtful, but it's written with um, an incredible sense of humor and a dry witticisms, and it's just a pleasure. And one of those little lines that Edward uses at the beginning is he says, people like to masturbate. They also like to get drunk and eat Twinkies. Not typically all at the same time, but that's a matter of personal preference. So, why, Edward, why is that line right at the top of your book? Well, first of all, that line was written at probably about 0.08 blood alcohol content. <laughs> so, I had been working on the, the book proposal. I'd written 10 versions of it, I think. And uh, my every time my agent would send it back, and she's just like boring. Yeah, it's not good. Re redo it. And she and she was right. So I had, um, you know, I had all the science in it, all the history, the arguments were there, but it was a very kind of plotting A to B to C. You know, this is a puzzle. This is why it's interesting. Um, it didn't draw you in, and I realized, oh, you know what? I haven't taken my own advice in the book, which is that if you need a creative insight or you need something new, you, you need to drink a little bit. So I uh, was on a conference trip. Uh, this was pre-pandemic, and uh, I had a couple hours before I was meeting my colleagues for dinner. So I took my laptop down to the hotel bar and ordered myself a Negroni, and by the end of that Negroni, it felt like I was taking dictation. So that line <laughs> came to me and then the rest of it, what's now pages one to two of the book, just appeared in my head and I just wrote it down. You know, I needed something to draw people in and um, get them hooked. You know, I start with masturbation and junk food just because the standard story has been that you know, alcohol is just like those things. It's just like these other vices. It's a kind of evolutionary mistake. And the main motive for writing drunk was to point out that that's not the case. Um, our, our taste for alcohol and other chemical intoxicants is actually qualitatively different from vices like junk food or masturbation. And it's important to realize that because we can't understand um, why it's been so central to civilization 
with, without mm-hmm. realizing that, that disanalogy. Right. Well, I think you, you make the analogy partially in the context of saying there are two major theories about why alcohol has been so prevalent uh, and survived for thousands of years among humankind, notwithstanding its abundant negative consequences. And you say there's a hijack theory and a hangover theory, and right. you kind of disabuse readers of both. So say a little more about that. So uh, hijack theories argue that alcohol is just the ethanol molecule. It just happens to hijack a reward network that evolved for other reasons. And so that's where masturbation comes in. Masturbation is a classic example of a hijack. So um, evolution gives us this awesome reward, the orgasm, for the thing that it most wants us to do, which is pass on copies of our genes to the next generation. So the adaptive target of the orgasm is reproductive sex. And yet humans and other organisms have figured out all sorts of wildly non-reproductive ways to get that reward. So that's a classic hijack. We're, we're getting the reward even though we're not doing the thing it's supposed to be for. The reason evolution lets us get away with that is because it's not very costly. Um, despite what you might have been told when you were younger, masturbation doesn't cause you to go blind. It's um, pretty physiologically negligible in terms of its cost. And the basic system works, right? Um, Evolution's not into perfection. It's into, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So this is, it works well enough. Um, The other type, so that's the dominant story. If you open a Psych 101 textbook, it's going to tell you that's why we we like to drink this this hijack theory. Um, Mm -hmm. Mismatches are a different type of evolutionary mistake. So this is where something was adaptive in our evolutionary past, but is not adaptive now. And that's where the Twinkies come in. So, so junk food is a classic example of this. So having a taste for sugar and fat and wanting to gorge on sugar and fat when we come across it has historically been a very adaptive trait in humans because those things were in short supply and you should gorge on them when you find them. It really only becomes a problem quite very recently in history when we live in these you know, affluent industrial societies where we have access to, to Twinkies and junk food and all sorts of bad things. And it's very costly. So unlike masturbation, it's actually very bad physiologically. It leads to obesity and diabetes and all these problems. But it's a very recent problem. And it's still not universal. So there are still plenty of places in the world where getting enough calories is, is a challenge. Mm-hmm. So here's a case where um, it's, it is costly, but it's so recent and geographically localized that evolution hasn't had time to deal with it. So when it comes to alcohol, the, the problem is it's not like either one of those things. So it did evolve for a good reason, but now things have changed and it's, it's maladaptive. So unlike masturbation, um, alcohol is very costly. Physiologically, it's physiologically dangerous. It's economically costly. Um, Unlike junk food, it's ancient. We've been producing and consuming alcohol all over the world um, for, you know, probably at least 20,000 years, probably much longer. So it's an ancient problem. So evolution's had plenty of time to deal with it um, if it were actually a, a mismatch type of mistake. And so um, I argue in the book that given the ubiquity and the costliness and the ancientness of our taste for alcohol, there's got to be something else going on. There have to be some adaptive benefits that are paying for the costs. 
And so probably the bulk of the book is is dedicated to walking readers through both, you know, what the challenges are that we face mm -hmm. as a species, as humans, and, and then how alcohol might be giving us these adaptive benefits. Right. So in the book, I mean, you make this fascinating set of arguments about why alcohol and how alcohol has been essential in human evolution and then bring it up to the present day, which we'll get to later. And then you also want to say we could not have civilization without intoxications and that without understanding the evolutionary dynamics of intoxicant use, we cannot even begin to think clearly or effectively about the role intoxicants can and should play in our lives today. So when you say, you know, we could not have civilization without intoxication, it's a bold statement. Say more about that. Well, in, there's one sense in which quite literally intoxication probably gave rise to civilization. So, so one thing I'm trying to flip on its head in the book is the standard story that I, I had learned, which is that our production of alcohol is kind of a mistake. So it's an evolutionary mistake that we like to drink. And then the fact that we make alcoholic beverages is a kind of byproduct of civilization and, and agriculture. So the standard story is, you know, we got agriculture, we started civilization, and then at some point our, you know, excess production, we decided to play around with it a little bit and discovered we could make beer and wine and things like that. Um, when I started to look at the archeological record, when I started doing the research for the book, I realized that the, it's almost certainly the case that it's the other way around. So in the book, I talk about this beer before bread hypothesis. So if we want to talk about the Fertile Crescent, so uh, the Mideast, where, probably where agriculture first started, we see these hunter-gatherers coming together, building this massive religious architecture. We don't know what it's for or exactly what they did there. Having these feasts, so we have the remains of feasts and then drinking liquids and they have these big vats that held liquids and maybe they were drinking sparkling water but it's really unlikely um, we don't have direct uh, chemical evidence from the the one site that i talk about in the book gobekli tepe but we know that people were making beer in the region um, we have evidence from thirteen thousand years ago so this is the site gobekli tepe is 10 10 to twelve thousand years old way before agriculture. We, did, we don't have agriculture yet in that region. And yet hunter-gatherers are coming together and, and brewing beer. And so the idea is that um, what motivated hunter-gatherers to then start settling down and cultivating crops, making them more productive, was the desire to make more and better beer, not to make bread. It wasn't for nutrition. It was for psychoactive reasons. And then, you know, I look at evidence from other parts of the world that wherever you look, it seems like the first cultivated plants were chosen for their psychoactive properties, not for nutrition. And so that's a sense in which, you know, quite literally, the desire to, to get intoxicated gave rise to civilization. It's what caused hunter-gatherers to settle down in the first place. You know, you're reminding me, uh, Edward, you know, when I've, over the decades, as I've been speaking around the world around drug policy reform, and I put, you know, I oftentimes make the point that there's, you know, almost never been a drug-free society in human history, um, mm -hmm. with just a relatively few exceptions. And that if you look about it, whether you're looking at alcohol, you know, you have basically hunter-gatherer tribes living in remote areas, oftentimes with no contact with their societies who somehow figure out alcohol. 
And it seems like you have cultures figuring this out independently. And somewhat the same thing happens with some of the psychedelic plants. And so it sounds like that's partially what you're saying. So why, why do you think the agricultural hypothesis that alcohol came with agriculture became so dominant? I mean, wasn't there enough evidence even before these theories of the agricultural impetus for, for alcohol? I don't know if we had some of this data. So we didn't, um, we didn't have sites like Gobekli Tepe back then. Um, we didn't have some of this more recent work. We have evidence now, and very this is very recent, of beer making 13,000 years ago in present-day Israel. So I think partly it was we, we didn't have the data. Um, we, didn't, we hadn't discovered some of these sites. But I also think it's, um, it's part of this broader prejudice or kind of weird, um, I call it a kind of neo-Puritan blind spot in scholarship. So you see it in religious studies. So that's my, my PhDs in religious studies. And let's say we're talking about ritual. Um, we talk about, you know, synchrony and singing and music and maybe sleep deprivation or how people are using pain, you know, painful activities and rituals to enhance their, their uh, mood or uh, feeling of bonding. And what no one ever talks about is these people are often high as hell when they're doing this, you know? And <laughs> right. so um, it's this weird blind spot where we're fine talking about piercing and scarification and sleep deprivation, but you want to start talking about psychedelics or about alcohol use and um, people get really oddly queasy. I talk in the book about some of the seminal figures in religious studies. So um, Mircea Eliade, who wrote this classic Big book on shamanism. Um, you know, he's got this whatever seven, eight hundred page book on shamanism. And I think he mentions chemical intoxicants two or three times and always in a negative way. Um, you know, this is kind of fake shamanism is when you're using psychedelics. So there's just it's a weird lacuna in scholarship. And I think it has to do with this kind of this odd Puritanism where we don't like to talk about chemical intoxicants. I mean, at one point you make the argument, in fact, that it's those societies which most integrated alcohol, including getting raucously drunk, that ended up being the more successful ones. Now, I was wondering as I'm reading your book, do, do you actually have a decent control group that you're comparing all this to and making that <laughs> statement? But you provide a lot of good examples of that. So in terms of control groups, um, the control group is the the extinct cultures that we don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> because um, they didn't, they lost the competition. I mean, that's one of the connections of this book with my earlier work. So I did, um, in Cognitive Science, Evolution of Religion, I was involved in a large research group that was trying to explain, you know, what this mysterious thing we do, which is religion. So you look all over the world and you see people worshiping invisible beings and, you know, piercing themselves and do, engaging in these painful rituals and cutting off the foreskin of their penis and um, refraining from eating delicious pork and shellfish and, and building these massive useless monuments. So, um, you know, what really got me thinking about religion in this way was the first emperor of Qin's tomb. I don't know. Most people are familiar with this terracotta army they, they discovered in China. So this is the person who unified China. Um, massive fake army made out of terracotta, individually made each soldier, uh, carrying real weapons. And then lots of real wealth was thrown in the ground, gold and these elaborate bronze vessels, 
um, horses were killed, people were killed and thrown in the pit. And then they buried it all in the ground. <laughs> it was for this dead guy in the afterlife. And I remember when I first kind of learned about that site and realized how much of the gross national product of the state of Chin went into that tomb. You know, I thought this was a period when these these states were in brutal competition with one another. Why isn't the, the case that there was a state as powerful as Chin, but instead of building a fake terracotta army, they built a real army? And instead of throwing all this wealth in the ground, they use the labor to, you know, build more effective city walls and do practical things. Why did they not outcompete this culture that was throwing all this wealth in the ground? And the answer has to be there has to be some adaptive benefits to doing that kind of crazy stuff. Um, and so, you know, we explored how these kind of costly displays and um, sacrifices help to build solidarity and, and get people past cooperation problems. And I think the same is true of alcohol. You know, in ancient Sumer, it's estimated they took half of their grain and turned it into beer. So they're taking really nutritious stuff that could make into bread and turning it into a liquid neurotoxin, essentially. You would think that groups that didn't do that would outcompete groups that did, um, that just kept all their grain for nutrition. And yet that's not the case um, because we see that the cultures that survive um, use psychoactives in this way. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be doing something for us. Well, and, well, let me just stop you one second here, because I remember hearing or reading that if you look in American history, the, the period when we had the highest levels of alcohol consumption in American history were back at the origins in the late, late 18th century, early 19th century. But that also one of the factors was that, was that turning alcohol into grain was a good way of preserving it, a good way of transporting it, so that... You know, yes, there are these arguments for drinking and then they, you know, all this, and, and there's the arguments about it being safer than water when water was impure, but also about e easier to preserve and to transport. So how do those things figure into all this? So those are kind of in the mix of the various mismatch theories. So one of the mismatch theories is the dirty water hypothesis. So, um, you know, contaminated water has been a problem for most of our history as a species. If you take contaminated water and ferment it into beer, it becomes potable. So that's one of the mismatch theories is that it was, you know, we, our taste for alcohol was adaptive in our evolutionary past because it helped us hydrate in situations where the water was contaminated. Um, the problem with that theory is that there are lots of ways to, to fix contaminated water, including just boiling it. And boiling it is a lot easier than turning it into beer um, and doesn't have the downsides of, you know, the negative physiological impacts that beer can have. Another of the theories is calorie storage. The problem, again, problem with this one is we think, well, you turn it into beer and it lasts for a really long time. That's actually not true. Um, that's true now because we have hops and other ways to preserve beers. But most historically made beers actually spoiled quite quickly. So like um, chicha, the beer made out of um, maize in South America, I think has to be consumed within two or three days. Um, so it actually doesn't last that long. Mm -hmm. When you're thinking about the American frontier, what you have in mind is distilled spirits. And that is a really good way to preserve things. Distilled spirits last for a really long time. They're relatively easy to transport because you're packing a lot of ethanol in a small package. Um, but distilled spirits are a relatively recent thing, too, as I point out in the book. They're really in Europe, really only 
1600, 1700s that we had these. But yeah, once you get distilled spirits, you can now preserve your grains in a way that um, is not only long lasting, but compact and easy to transport and trade. And so alcohol really becomes a different type of thing once we figure out distillation. But that can't be part of the story if we're talking about you know, some behavior that started 20,000 years ago. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Part of the way you also frame this thing, and this gets into, I think, a little more the meat of the argument, is you frame some of this as a struggle between two Greek gods, between Apollo on the one hand and Dionysus on the other hand. So lay that out for our audience. Yeah, yeah so Apollo, um, one way to look at this is Apollo is the god of the prefrontal cortex. <laughs> so I talk, the prefrontal cortex plays a big role in my book. It's um, really important part of the human being, right? We, there's, it's very physiologically expensive. We wouldn't have it if it wasn't doing something important. You need it to control your behavior. You need it to be ordered. So, you know, Apollo is the god of order, kind of doing things the right way, symmetry, um, control. You know, it's about control. And the PFC is the center of cognitive control, of executive function. It's what allows you to um, suppress desires or um, stay focused on a task and not get distracted. It's what allows you to persevere in the face of, you know, t- 
tiredness or boredom. It's everything that a four-year-old doesn't have, um, but that a successful adult has to have. And civilizations need this. We couldn't build civilization without this kind of um, perseverance, focus, self-control. And that's all the realm of Apollo. The friends of Apollo chemically are stimulants. So things like caffeine and nicotine, you know, they strengthen our ability to focus and stay on task. But the Greeks, you know, and the Greeks thought Apollo was really important, but they also worshiped Dionysus. And so, um, you know, Dionysus is the the god that comes out when we dethrone the PFC or, or turn it down a few notches. Dionysus is more like our childlike selves. Um, so creative, trusting, open to new experience, willing to try anything, engaged in play. Kids are like this and adults can be like that temporarily when they essentially reverse uh, cognitive maturation and go, you know, turn the PFC down and go back to being like like they were when they were little. And the, what's interesting, the reason I find Dionysus useful in the book is the Greeks worship Dionysus as a god and recognize the importance of both Apollo and Dionysus. But they were a lot more worried about Dionysus than Apollo. He's um, Dionysus is a little bit scary. Um, he's worshipped as a god, but they're wary of him. And it's, I think, significant that the um, gifts that, that Dionysus can give you can go wrong if you're not careful. They're often two-sided. So Dionysus is the one who gave, for instance, Midas the, the golden touch didn't work out very well for him. Mm -hmm. um, so they respected and worshiped Dionysus, but they also saw the dangers there. And I think that's the right attitude to have toward chemical intoxicants in general and alcohol in particular is respecting its power, seeing that it's an important part of our lives, but also um, being aware that it can turn you into an animal like, like Dionysus could. You know, I recently did an episode with a German uh, writer, Norman Oller, who wrote a book called Blitzed, about how the German army was so successful, especially in the Blitzkrieg in 1940 over Belgium, Netherlands, and France, because of the use of methamphetamine. And in all yeah. their drug use, there's almost no discussion of the role of alcohol um, in modern day, the value for modern day armies. Mm -hmm. So say more about the war fighting abilities of um of, uh, you know, alcohol and why alcohol was seen as a friend to that more than an enemy. Well, the crucial thing to get uh, soldiers to fight effectively and your army to be cohesive and effective is getting people to trust each other, right? I argue in the book that one of the central features of human life, especially in larger scale societies, is the fact that we have to overcome these cooperation dilemmas. They go by various names, prisoner's dilemma, tragedy of the commons. But the, the common structure is we, we all do best if we trust each other. And, and if we don't pursue our immediate selfish uh, self-interest, if we can do that, we actually all end up better in the end. I mean, this happens all the time in life, in mundane situations like helping your friend to move a couch um, when he's moving. Um, but you kind of the most dramatic example is war right? You're literally sacrificing the most important thing, your life, um, for these other people. And so um, armies are effective to the degree to which they can form these cohesive groups that trust one another and operate well together as a, as a unit. And, and how do you do that? You look at one, an army attacking another army, especially in the pre-modern period, 
um, the first thing that comes to mind is like ant armies fighting or, you know, you see humans cooperating on a scale that looks like social insects and sacrificing themselves in a way that looks like social insects. We know how social insects pull that off. It's because they're all genetically the same. <laughs> they all, mm -hmm. they're basically one big superorganism. It's puzzling how primates pull that off because we are not one big superorganism. Um, we're individual primates with primate biology, and yet we behave like social insects sometimes. And the key to that is things like religion. So religion's doing some of that work. But another really crucial um, cultural technology that we use to forge individuals into cohesive trusting units is alcohol and other intoxicants. So, you know, we get drunk together. We are down-regulating our PFC, so we, um, we're less able to lie. So, you know, lying or trying to trick another person into, into trusting you when you're not really trustworthy is a really cognitively demanding task. Because at the same time, you have to keep in your mind both what the truth is, which you know to be the truth, and then the fake thing you're telling this person. You've got to make all your facial expressions and emotional reactions fit the fake thing, and, and you have to suppress any that, that apply to the real thing that you don't want them to know about. It's really a very PFC-heavy task. If you hit the PFC with some ethanol, it really impairs your ability to do that. And so you bring people together, you get them impaired cognitively so that they, they can't lie they, or it's harder for them to lie or act in an untrustworthy way. You're simultaneously um, boosting endorphins and serotonin, these kind of social bonding hormones that make you feel good about yourself, but also make you feel good about others and feel connected to others. This is how you forge individuals into super organisms, in a, at least temporarily. And so you can see why um, throughout history, militaries have used this technique for, for forging individuals into units and then also giving them, you know, the other thing alcohol does is make you reckless. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And that, that's, you need a little recklessness if you're going to be fighting against other people. So it reduces um, amygdala response, it reduces fear, so it reduces stress. Um, that I think militaries have always seen as crucial. And I think that's really only changed recently when warfare has become more technical. So alcohol was crucial when we were picking up swords and rushing into battle to fight other people. Um, it's less helpful when I'm sitting in a control room trying to pilot a drone. So I think that's one of the reasons that um, we don't see it as much in modern armies, just because the nature of warfare has really Although, transformed. You know, it is interesting, right? Because um, I mean, first of all, you have this great line in, in the book that says, those who puke together stay together. Yeah, right. And I guess that's in some sense a good su su summation of what you just said. But I'm thinking about the Navy SEALs. I think you mm -hmm. mentioned them in the book. And that's, you know, one yeah. of the great military, elite military units in the U.S. and the world. Um, but just recently has been in the news because of all the abuses. And that's obviously yeah. one where, you know, the commanders want their, you know, their Navy SEALs not just to survive all sorts of brutal forms of training. They want them to get drunk to bond. But then the question is, is all of that somehow linked to some of the abusive stuff we've also seen there or not? Yeah. Yeah. So they, you know, the Navy SEALs are one organization that's not sitting in a control room piloting drones, right? They're right. doing really physical, yeah. dangerous stuff that looks a lot more like more traditional types of warfare. 
And so um, I tell that story about this this Navy SEAL commander who, after training, would take all the, the group out and get them really drunk. And there's a level of intoxication that you get in um, business meetings or treaty meetings that's more moderate, and that's you know dealing with this kind of building trust thing. There's a level of inebriation, especially once you get distilled spirits, where it's going beyond um, so much intoxication per se and becoming more of a costly signal. Um, it's almost like you know scarifying yourself or doing something painful. It's the fact that you're hurting yourself and you know you're going to be really in bad shape the next morning, but we're all doing it together and we're all doing it voluntarily that shows that you're one of the group. So it becomes a kind of uh, hazing. It's a, it's a form of hazing, really. And you can see how that both could be useful in building um, a sense of belonging and a sense of, of group bonding, but could very easily tip over into abuse. And so that's the nice edge that you're walking when, when you're using these type of hazing techniques, which all cultures have used. I mean, um, there's all sorts of initiation rituals that, you know, often involve huge quantities of intoxicants and then um, often physical pain or danger or fear to get people to bond. And it's a, it's a delicate balance to get enough of that so the bonding happens without tipping over into abuse or harm. Groups that don't use intoxicants either because they don't have them, they live in an extreme environment where it's hard to make them, or they they ban them for religious theological reasons, uh, tend to substitute other practices that get you to the same place. Um, mm-hmm. So I talk about the you know Pentecostals who don't drink, but they have these prayer sessions where they work themselves up to these frenzies where they start, you know, fall on the floor and start speaking in tongues or they handle snakes. So they, they have the same effect in kind of downregulating the PFC and, and boosting some of these feel-good hormones. So groups can use that instead. It's just that that's really, you know, I think as I may put it this way in the book, it's, it's kind of a hassle. Like staying up all mm-hmm. night singing and dancing is really time consuming and difficult. Um, and so there's a good reason that that most cultures are like, yeah, we could do that, but why don't instead we just sit around and drink beer? So there, there's different routes to that state, but the non-chemical intoxicant ones um, are much more time consuming. Well, you know, when you when you were both when I was reading your book, and then again when you were telling the story about how you came up with that opening line about uh, masturbation and such, you know, under the influence of a, a fairly high amount of alcohol. But it made me think of some of the books that are out there. I mean, you know, there's a book called The Thirsty Muse about the use of alcohol by famous, you know, literary writers. Oh, there's okay. a book called Opium in the Romantic Imagination about how yeah. famous writers, you know, used opium. Uh, there's a book called Cigarettes Are Sublime. And of course, you have all the Silicon Valley folks and Nobel Prize winners, you know, who claim that their psychedelic experience helped provide um, the insight that resulted in their creating, you know, zillion-dollar companies or winning a Nobel Prize. And sometimes yeah. sometimes cannabis gets credit like that. I was just hanging with a friend of mine who's a, one of the leading scholars of international relations in the world, and he credits, you know, his occasional cannabis use to being the thing that's given him some of his best insights and reflections. So yeah, yeah. Now I talk in the book about this. You know, the, there's all over the world throughout history. There's a connection between chemical intoxicants and creative types. So artists, poets, shamans, you know, people who, who are coming up with new stuff. 
And, and I talk about why that's not a myth. Evolution faced this design trade-off where it needed us to have a PFC so we could get to work on time and focus, do things. Um, but it also needed us to be creative and trusting and think of do things. And, um, and one way it dealt with that trade-off was by slow walking the maturation of the PFC. So it's, that's the last part of the brain to mature. Um, it doesn't fully mature until you're in your mid-20s. So it's really the, the last part of a human to, to mature. And that keeps kids you know, flexible and creative and able to learn new things and curious. There's good both indirect and direct evidence that chemical intoxicants are a solution to this design trade-off. We, we have to have a PFC, but with these substances, we can turn it down when we want to and get back to a more childlike state of creativity um, and being able to see new possibilities. And so um, there's a very good reason that artists and poets and anyone, but anyone who needs a new insight. So, you know, I talk about my talk I gave at Google, one of the Google campuses, and I was talking about at some point um, alcohol and creativity. The study had just come out showing that if you got people to about 0.08 BAC, they solve um, lateral thinking tasks better. And they said, well, we know we're taking you on our tour. And so the first place they took me on their tour was this whiskey room. They said when they're working on a problem and they hit a wall, they can't figure it out. Instead of drinking more coffee or smoking nicotine and sitting in front of their computers and, and working, pulling all-nighters, they stop and they go to the whiskey room and they pour themselves a little bit of scotch and they sit in beanbag chairs and they just chat. And that's how they tend to um, get past these problems because what they need is an insight. And, and alcohol is helping with that, especially well, group Just tell our audience a bit, you mentioned something called in that context, the Balmer Peak. Oh, yeah. Kind of that. Yeah, yeah, describe yeah. The, so describe they, the Balmer they, Peak. Yeah, so they asked me if I'd ever heard of this concept. And this is, um, I think it's probably apocryphal, but um, we could find out. We could <laughs> contact Steve Ballmer. But supposedly, you know, Steve Ballmer, the C former CEO of Microsoft and, and great coder, um, discovered that his coding ability peaked at this very narrow blood alcohol content, like very specific and narrow blood alcohol content. And so supposedly he would keep himself uh, hooked up to an alcohol IV to just be right at that whatever point, you know, 0787 <laughs> that he found was the best way to code. And it gets at this idea that there's an optimal level of inebriation where you're still sober enough to remember what the problem is you're trying to solve and, you know, still you have your faculties intact but you're loosened up enough that you're, you're flexible, you're creative, you're doing new stuff. Yeah. And humans, you know, humans know this and consciously or unconsciously, we use chemical intoxicants to, as an aid, as a tool, as a kind of mind hack, when we need divergent creativity or we need mm -hmm. lateral thinking. Although, you know, I'll tell you, when I was working on my dissertation, uh, I would occasionally go have dinner with a friend. You know, I would have a drink or two with dinner, and then I'd have like a double espresso in the evening. Okay. 
And I basically saw it as my speedball. It was my yeah, speedball. And then I go back to the office and I'd work till yeah. two, three, four in the morning <laughs> and the ideas would be flowing and might be yeah. a little looser in my writing, but I'd have the energy. Now, you make a fair bit also of the genetic arguments and you talk about the Asian flushing syndrome, in fact, in numerous places in your book. Explain why that's significant. So one counter argument. So, you know, I say, well, look, uh, our taste for alcohol is ancient, and if it were only a costly mistake, evolution would have done something about it by now. One counterargument is that sometimes evolution can't fix a problem. Something really is a mistake, and it really is a problem, but evolution can't fix it. And there are two reasons that could be the case. One is what's called path dependence. So I'm using intentional language here, but this is all a blind process. But previous choices constrain later choices. And so a good example of a mistake like this is the human back. We have all these back problems because our, um, our backs are terrible for, for walking upright. You would never design a bipedal organism with a back like ours. But evolution didn't have the luxury of designing us from scratch. It was taking a tree-living primate and gradually hacking it to, to walk upright. Um, so that's a path dependence problem. You just you get stuck in a certain valley and design space and you can't get out of it. Another possibility is just that the, the right variation hasn't come along yet. So selection can only act on variation that exists. And so it's possible that alcohol is this ancient, costly mistake and genetic evolution would love to solve it, but it just hasn't had a solution yet. And so this is where, this is why the Asian flushing syndrome plays such an important role in the book, because this is the solution to the problem. <laughs> um, so, you know, why do people like to drink? Well, because it makes us feel good. Well, the question is, why does evolution allow it to make us feel good? And clearly it doesn't have to, it could make us feel bad if we consume alcohol. And that's what the, this, this syndrome does. So it's a, what's interesting is this is a set of two mutations, two, two separate mutations, and they're not linked. So they're clearly getting selected for, for some function and they interrupt our ability to metabolize ethanol. If you consume any alcohol, it, it makes you flush, it makes you nauseous, it makes, gives you heart palpitations. Basically, um, if you have this genetic syndrome, Drinking doesn't make you feel good. It makes you feel bad. And it actually is so effective in discouraging alcohol consumption that a chemical that mimics its effects is used to treat alcoholism um, quite effectively. Mm -hmm. So this is a silver bullet. If our taste for intoxication is a genetic mistake, the solution exists in the gene pool. It's not the case that evolution hasn't come up with a variation yet. Because it and, essentially is allowing people to get mildly inebriated, but once you drink too much, it's you feel bad. There is a, they can't even really drink enough to get inebriated. Um, they mm -hmm. can drink enough to get um, some of the benefits that are you know, supported to some of these mismatched benefits, right? Maybe micronutrients. But yeah, they don't, they certainly don't, they're protected from alcoholism, for instance, because they just don't like to drink that much. And this gene complex, it's estimated it evolved seven to 10,000 years ago and around kind of where modern day Shanghai is, probably at the same time as the um, creation of rice agriculture. So it seems to be some adaptation to rice agriculture. And it's possible that it's protective against tuberculosis could be one of the functions. 
It's also protective against fungal poisoning. So it could be you know, an adaptation to dealing with storing grain in wet conditions. But in any case, it hasn't spread. So this solution to the problem of alcohol has existed for probably 10,000 years, and yet it's remained in this relatively geographically constrained area and hasn't spread very far. And that's not what you would predict if alcohol was just a costly mistake. This would be like if you had a gene that caused people to not like Twinkies and love you know, Brussels sprouts and <laughs> eating their greens. If Twinkies were a scourge that goes back 20,000 years, that gene would, would spread pretty quickly. Um, so to me, this is a, a, a very clear case of where you have this supposed problem, you have a very clear solution, quote unquote, and yet the solution doesn't spread. So that suggests that the problem isn't just a problem, right? It, mm-hmm. it, there must be um, adaptive benefits that are coming along with it. Mm-hmm. So you say about alcohol on the one hand, you say alcohol is more like a pharmacological hand grenade. You also describe it as the king of intoxicants and the perfect drug. Mm-hmm. Now, you've talked about some of this, but the pharmacological hand grenade, is that a good feature? To it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it probably is, is a feature and not a bug. So this, is a, uh, this phrase comes from Stephen Brown, the journalist Stephen Brown. He's the one who coined the term pharmacological hand grenade. Um, and he compares that with lasers. You know, the LSD or cocaine is like a laser. It's going in and doing a very specific thing to the brain. Alcohol's um, depressing several different regions of the brain while it's simultaneously um, ramping up serotonin and endorphins, and so giving it's a stimulant in various ways. This seems to be this mix of effects seems to be a feature of alcohol. Um, I think if I could revise the book, I wouldn't call alcohol the perfect drug. I would call it the least bad drug Mm. um, in the sense that it's not perfect. But if you gave a cultural engineering team some design specs, you know, you said, look, we need, a, we need an intoxicant because we want to downregulate the PFC. We want to upregulate these hormones. It's got to be easy to make. You should be able to make it out of anything. It should be easy to discover. It should have consistent cognitive effects across individuals. It should have a short half-life. There's got to be a mechanism in the body to, to break it down and get it out pretty quickly so you can get back to normal quickly. It's got to be easy to dose. If you gave them this whole list of things you needed, alcohol's pretty much the ideal solution to these problems. But it's not ideal. I mean, the, alcohol would be the perfect drug, I think, if it did everything that it does, but it w- wasn't physically addictive and it wasn't so physiologically harmful. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. A lot of the book's about the benefits of moderate drinking and bonding, but it's also in part about the benefits, right, of getting drunk, Mm -hmm. Um, both historically. You know, you talk about the Vikings and their great drunk fest and how much, you know, massive amounts of alcohol, and yet how incredibly successful they were for many, many centuries. Um, And you bring it up to the present. But I I do think that's an important uh, role that alcohol plays. My closest friendships, the guys I've been friends with since college 40 years ago, you know, are the ones I probably got the drunkest with. And those yeah. are the ones where yeah. it kind of got in the, you know, the, the inhibitions you have as a young man in your 20s about sharing very intimate stuff. I mean, we yeah. broke through talking about stuff like that in a way that bonded us. And fortunately, none of us, actually, I shouldn't say, one of us already showed signs of it and eventually did become an alcoholic and died of his alcoholism in his 50s. Oh, wow. Um, okay. You know, the, yeah. the one British member of, our, of this. But all the others, it was, I think, a really very substantial net benefit. Yeah, one of the anecdotes that I ended up taking out of the book um, was about that. Uh, so it was a, a good friend of mine, very old friend of mine, who um, I had a bit of a falling out with. We were going through a tough period. And the, the breakthrough was, um, this was actually during the pandemic, so it was remote, it was over Zoom. Um, but we got really, really drunk <laughs> on Zoom together. And he was finally, you know, we got to a level of inebriation where he could tell me what he was so angry about. And I was in a receptive state of mind where I could, you know, grasp why he was upset and apologize sincerely, you know, and really feel sorry. And, you know, we were able to share emotions. I think, you know, particularly men um, use this in their friendships because it's not for whatever reason, whether it's um, a genuine genetic gender difference or if it's just because of cultural norms, um, sharing emotions is not something we tend to do. Oh, you know, you do make me think that, uh, you know, I I have to say alcohol played that pivotal role for me in my 20s. um, But once I got into my 30s and 40s, it was displaced in that regard by MDMA. Okay. I mean, an MDA, just pivotal in terms of being able to talk about things that are difficult to talk about, being able to listen to things that are difficult to listen about. 
Um, now, mind you, you can't, can't do it with the frequency of alcohol, which then again may be a benefit in some regards, but it's yeah. an interesting thing that alcohol and MDMA do share in common at times. Yeah, and, and for similar physiological reasons, right? They're, um, they're ramping. I mean, MDMA is a stimulant, but it's got that, um, it's, it's flooding you with serotonin, right? You're just feeling so good um, that it's, it has a similar kind of expansive you get that similar type of expansiveness that you get can get with alcohol, but in a much mm -hmm. more targeted way. Um, so yeah, I mean that's the I think in a in a kind of healthy grown up life we'd understand what what various chemical intoxicants are good for, and what their various you know downsides or dangers are, and figure out a strategy for using them when appropriate. And I think you know those of us who are thoughtful and knowledgeable at this manage to do it on an individual level the the great challenges on the societal level, which brings us more fully into the present, which we've alluded to and come to occasionally. But you know, there's two things going on in your book about the present time. I mean, one is you're basically offering a a fundamental challenge to the kind of neo-prohibitionist. Uh, you know, thinking and mindset that's out there, and you know, you you reference the uh, uh, the study that came out in the British Journal of the Lancet in 2018, the punchline of which was the safest level of drinking is none, and you dismiss. I don't know if you call it terrible or stupid or something like that, with which I thoroughly agree. And it's notable that a new study just came out in the Lancet in the last few months, in which they acknowledge the potential benefits of moderate drinking, especially among older people. Well, um, only among older I, people, though. They, only they among say older it's people. still zero benefit if you're under 40. Is yeah. The and then I see piece. that, you know, you're an American living in Canada now, and I see that the Center for uh, Substance Abuse and Addiction in Canada just came out with recommendations in September, you know, basically saying, you know, knock that drinking down almost to the floor. I mean, a very, yeah. not fully prohibitionist, but quasi-prohibitionist take. And so you express your exasperation about all of that. And, you know, to point out the benefits of the office party and all that. But then there's the flip side. And it's your last chapter, right, which I think you called uh, uh, distillation and isolation. And this is just talking about all the harms of alcohol and what's wrong with alcohol and the fact that we've now moved not just from beer and wine, but to distilled liquors. And part of me was thinking, OK, you know, Slingerland's just trying to cover his ass here. He's already done a celebration of <laughs> alcohol for the first that's whatever, that's 80% yeah. of the book. And now, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, but, and so, but then you make an argument about how distillation and isolation have, may have changed the game. And that maybe even that old, um, I can't remember if it was the hijack or hangover theory, may have some application that we haven't quite yet figured out in terms of the future of distilled liquor. So lay that out about isolation and distillation and the problems there um, for our listeners. Yeah. So the distillation first. Uh, so for almost all of our history with alcohol, we've been drinking naturally fermented beverages. And alcoholic beverages come with a kind of built-in safety feature which is that they just can't get much stronger than a certain level because, you know, the yeast are producing alcohol and at a certain point they poison themselves. They're more resistant than the, the bacteria are, right? So they're, they're engaging in biological warfare against these bacteria that are, that are very susceptible to alcohol. They're tougher, but they're not infinitely tough. And we've been breeding yeast to get tougher and tougher so we can make stronger and stronger beers and wines. But for most of our evolutionary history, the alcohol content of, of these beverages was capped at a pretty low level. So the beers we were drinking were, were coming at about 2 to 3% ABV, 
and fruit wines a bit higher, but probably eight, nine, maybe 10% ABV. So those are relatively safe delivery vehicles for ethanol. They're delivering ethanol to our bodies at a rate that we can kind of deal with. And especially like if you're drinking a two to 3% ABV beer and you're a fully grown adult, you can drink that all day long and never get beyond you know, 0.8 or so BAC. But, but, but what were those Vikings drinking at those fests? What was the line you had from some historian? They died with a cup in their hand or something yeah, like that? Yeah, they were drinking, mead, they were drinking meads um, that were getting up to slightly higher alcohol level. And they were just heroically drinking massive quantities of it. Uh-huh. I mean, it is physically possible. It's just challenging. You've got to basically mm-hmm. be drinking constantly to get really drunk on things like that. Then relatively recently, so um, in Europe, not until the 1600s or 1700s, which in you know the story I'm telling is basically yesterday, we figured out how to disable the safety feature of naturally fermented beverages by distilling them. Um, so we pull the alcohol off and we could pr- then produce these incredibly concentrated distilled liquors. So um, you, know, you could get vodkas that come in in the 90s in terms of ABV percentage. And so part of my argument is this is a novel form of alcohol that's so much more powerful. It really should be considered a different drug and it's much, much more dangerous. You can, um, you know, the sweet spot, let's say, is 0.08 BAC. Uh, you're drinking 2 to 3% beer. You can drink that in a moderate pace all day long and kind of stay at 0.08. You're doing shots of vodka. You just blow right past 0.08 into levels where you're blacking out and you know potentially killing yourself um, quite quickly. So we now have access to a much, much more powerful form of alcohol that's order of magnitudes more powerful than anything we've had to deal with before. Um, so that's distillation. Isolation refers to the fact that historically our alcohol consumption has always been social. Um, having private access to alcohol is almost unheard of in most societies. And every society that I know of that uses alcohol surrounds its consumption with various formal and informal rituals that help individuals to control their consumption. So I talk about you know the Greek symposium wine party where the symposiarch was in charge of mixing you know the wine to water ratio and you only drank when the thing got passed around by the symposiarch so they could control the pace of drinking. In Chinese banquets, you don't drink at will. You, you can only drink when someone makes a toast. And then whoever's in charge of making toasts is um, strictly, at least traditionally, regulated by ritual. So these are all ways we control alcohol consumption. And even in what seem like completely unstructured uh, modern situations, so you go to the pub with your friends, you're typically drinking in rounds. So, you know, if you drink too quickly, you got to wait to order your next drink until we're all done. And the barkeep could not make eye contact with you if they're worried about how quickly you're drinking. There's all these ways when we're drinking in groups that we can moderate each other's behavior. Once you can go to a drive through liquor store and load up your SUV with a case of vodka and drive it home and have all this, you know, enough alcohol in your house to kill a village full of people and you're alone and you can just consume that whenever you want. That's a really new 
evolutionarily novel situation and a, and a quite dangerous one because I, I don't think we're well equipped to moderate our alcohol consumption by ourselves. We need social help. Um, and, and I think, you know, a natural experiment that showed this is, is the pandemic. You know, it's, it's a great natural experiment. Hey, let's see what happens if we don't let people leave the house anymore. Um, but we still give them as much alcohol as they want. <laughs> What's going to happen? And, and what happened was people, problem drinking became really, really serious. And I know a lot of people who are still struggling with, with the aftermath of that, trying to get back to sustainable levels of consumption mm -hmm. after what? indulging. Yeah, I mean, you quote the aforementioned uh, Dwight Heath. Once again, the yeah. uh, Brown University anthropologist is talking about one of the greatest uh, indicators of problem drinking is drinking alone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. More than almost anything else. And you also make the point that America is particularly bad in this regard. I mean, you contrast the Southern European drinking culture, which, you know, drinking, you know, wine and beer with food, and you and with the Northern drinking one, which is more about drinking to get drunk, you know, in the Scandinavian countries, Russia, Denmark, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but then you say America seems to do it even more problematically than the Northern <laughs> Europeans. Yeah, well, it's because we've got two separate problems. Well, maybe three separate problems. One is that we're a northern drinking culture. So, you know, this is where you're drinking to get drunk. You're drinking primarily distilled spirits. Um, you're often drinking in unisex groups. So a bunch of dudes get drunk together, a bunch of women getting drunk together. You're drinking too with the purpose of getting drunk. And the goal is to be visibly drunk. There's something wrong with you if you're not visibly drunk. As opposed to Southern cultures where we're being you know, really visibly intoxicated is kind of shameful. Um, it's not, not something you want to do in public. Um, so that's unhealthy. So we, we've inherited that Northern drinking culture. On top of that, we have a more serious isolation problem because it's more common in America to live in suburbs where um, you don't have a local that you go to you know, on your walk back from the, the tube. You get in your car at your office park and you drive home to your house and you're drinking alone or at most you know, with your family around, but not socially in the way you do in Europe or in major cities in, in the U.S. where you have, you know, a, a pub, a local that you're going to. Um, so there's the isolation problem is higher in the States. Um, and then on top of all that, you have this weird Christian culture <laughs> of, mm -hmm. you know, the Puritans, you know, these are the first ones who came over, right? Where they demonize alcohol and therefore have this kind of um, love-hate relationship with it. Um, you know, I quote this anthropologist, Janet Curzan, who's got a great book about um, U.S. drinking culture and the problems with it, where she's, you know, as an anthropologist in the American South, she noticed that she would um, go to the liquor store because they have liquor stores and they, the Baptists drink, but people she had met at church wouldn't make eye contact with her in the liquor store. And she'd like, you know, try to wave to them and they'd like look the other way and pretend they didn't know her. And she was like, what? This is weird. And then a friend of hers said, you know, you don't say hello to someone in the liquor store. Um, in the same way you wouldn't, if you were, you know, if I ran into you in a porn store, we wouldn't be like, Hey, what are you getting? You know, <laughs> it's shameful to be seen there is shameful. Um, and that's just a weird attitude to have towards alcohol. And so you pile all that on top of each other and you get a really pathological drinking culture. Mm -hmm. 
You know, you're just making me think, though, of a couple of the counterexamples um, historically, right? So one you talk about briefly is the Mormons, who maybe not at their origins, but, you know, shortly after their origins, basically are, you know, no inebriants. And I guess I'll let you point out that, you know, there's Mormon tea made from, a, you know, a plant that's got ephedra in it. But I mean, basically coffee, alcohol, all that sort of stuff, yet a very successful um, yep. culture. And then the second one is Islam, which has banned alcohol, but been tolerant of other ones. Um, and the Ottoman Empire was, you know, a very successful and powerful empire for centuries. So is it just that, in fact, drinking was always going on and just you didn't talk about it like in the South? Or was it something else that enabled them to be so successful where drinking was not playing a big role in their culture? So I think what's happening with, with Mormonism, and, and scholars have argued this is the case with Islam too. So in the case of Islam, they're surrounded by these Mediterranean wine drinking cultures, and they need to distinguish themselves. And one of the ways they do it is through the, these kind of costly displays. So, so this is one of the um, features of successful religions is that they make you do counterproductive from a practical standpoint, costly things to show that you really believe in the belief system that you're professing you believe in. And also you do things that distinguish you from non-members. And so I think that the Mormon ban on alcohol and caffeine is more like the kind of, you know, Mormon underwear and the other things they do mm -hmm. that distinguishes them from people around them. It's a very clever costly demand on adherence. It enhances your sense that you are a group different from the groups around you, but it's, it's not directly functionally a response to the problem of alcohol. It's a group mm -hmm. marking device. So you're in the end of this book basically saying distilled liquors are a real threat. You're a big fan of the office party. You point out how, you know, you and your buddies having some drinks in a lounge helped you get all sorts of research grants to come up with great ideas and to bond and to, you know, you know, kind of moderate the competition among people and increase the, uh, the collaboration. But are you basically saying that when you're having office parties, uh, don't put the distilled liquor out there? Yeah, in short. <laughs> um, or be worried, be more worried about it. So in terms of practical considerations, one of the ways writing this book, doing the research for it has changed my behavior is I appreciate beer a lot more. Um, I never was a beer drinker. I'm, I'm a wine drinker and, and, and scotch and various distilled liquors. Um, mm -hmm. But I've come to see the, the benefit of beer and as kind of a delivery device for ethanol, a way to deliver ethanol to your brain and your friend's brains at a sustainable pace. And um, it's changed my behavior. So I had this uh, welcome thing for some new uh, postdocs in this project that I run. And, you know, I made the conscious decision to, instead of, you know, ordering rounds of cocktails for people or getting bottles of wine for the table, um, I got pitchers of beer. And mm. it, I don't really like beer <laughs> as much as I like those other things. But, but I thought, you know, this is actually a more safe and sustainable social drug. Um, so yeah, I would say be worried about um, distilled liquors. I know this is the case, I think in Germany and some other European countries, there's different ages when you can legally drink distilled spirits as opposed to beer and wine. Um, you can mm -hmm. drink beer and wine younger. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it makes me wonder with these new, you know, these canned cocktails that are coming out now, which I think the alcohol content is equivalent to beer or wine, and whether that's going to land up making them more like beer and wine than it is like drinking shots of something. Yeah, but it seems to be taking off and competing with beer now. Yeah, and if you're, you know, engineering something that's deliberately low low ABV, um, that seems like a sustainable strategy. Mm-hmm. Well, we're just so just to finish off here a little bit more about your own evolution. Um, I mean, so you know, you're you're a sinologist. You learn Chinese. You're writing these you know brilliant academic books about ancient China, or I don't know if you call it ancient, but China a long time ago. Yeah. And then you had a a, a breakout, sort of a, your first of your crossover books before Drunk, called Trying Not to Try about early Chinese philosophers, you know, talking and writing about an effortless way of being in the world, which they called Wu Wei. Did that in any way cause you to open up to writing this book about drunk or what was the impetus? Or was that totally was directly, it was directly, that? it was directly related. Um, so yeah, my, my colleagues are a bit puzzled why I've suddenly written this book about alcohol. Um, but, you know, in trying not to try, I explore this tension in early Chinese thought that they want you to get into this state called wu wei or effortless action. Um, this spontaneous state, you're creative, you're in the zone, you're, you lose the sense of yourself as an agent, and everything works out. You solve problems, people trust you and like you, you have this charisma, and, and so they want you to get into this state. The problem is there's this paradox, I call it the paradox of wu wei or the, you know, the version in the title of the book, how do you how do you try not to try? It's directly paradoxical. So if I'm telling you, hey, relax, stop trying, um, the part of the brain that I'm activating is your prefrontal cortex. I'm lighting up your prefrontal cortex by asking you to do something agentic. And yet that's the part of the brain we're trying to shut down. So it's directly counterproductive. The early Chinese came up with various strategies to get around that essentially giving you stuff to do to distract you, (laughs) you know, like do this ritual or sit in meditation. But in the course of writing, especially the trade version of that book, um, I was talking about this story from this early Taoist text where they compare a drunken person to the Taoist sage. And and they're clearly using it just as an, an analogy. So you should be drunk on heaven and not drunk on alcohol. But it did cause a little light bulb to go off in my head. And, and I thought, well, you know what? You know, if you have cultures that are aware that spontaneity is valuable for certain goals, creativity, trust, and yet is also aware that it's paradoxical to, to ask people to consciously become spontaneous, what a great workaround to find a chemical substance that you could take that will do the job for you. So, you know, it's directly paradoxical to try to use your mind to shut down your mind. It's not paradoxical to drink a substance that, you know, completely outside of your control is doing that job for you. So I I started to get interested in the idea that um, cultures have figured out that you could use chemical intoxicants as this cultural tool to solve the paradox of how, how you can try not to try. So, so that, that directly led to um, mm-hmm. my interest in writing this book. 
I'm curious, you know, your book, I'm curious about the reactions you've gotten to it, not least in the community of alcohol and drug researchers. I didn't do any thorough search, but I'm wondering how it's been received and evaluated by all of the people getting funded to look at the problems with alcohol and all of those alcohol researchers and public health and all that. Yeah, so it's um, surprisingly positive across the board. <laughs> you know, I'm a I'm not an alcohol specialist by original training, but I am a re- good researcher. So you know, I did my homework. I really um, spent a long time doing the research for the book, and I reached out to to a lot of these specialists in the field. I'm still, you know, there's still a, a kind of you want to think of it as medicalized wing. Um, I mean, most of the professional academic publications on on alcohol are in a medicalized lens. You know, it's treating it as a physical problem, physiological impact. Those people aren't convinced. Um, and, you know, I still actually one colleague I really respect, Randy Nessie, who's um, kind of the founder of evolutionary medicine, um, remained unconvinced by my argument. <laughs> um, so there are people who aren't convinced. And I, I do get... Um, kickback from people who say, hey, how can you be celebrating alcohol when it's so damaging and, you know, alcoholism such a serious scourge. And um, But I think I did, you know, so that last chapter about the, the dangers of alcohol isn't just a ass-covering add-on. It's at the heart of the book. I mean, the whole the whole premise of the book is this is a really dangerous, harmful substance that cultures have always been ambivalent about. So why do we still use it? Um, so the, the dangers and the potential downsides of alcohol are, are a motivating force in the argument from the very beginning, I think. Um, so I think people see that as well and see that, um, you know, even though I'm, I'm talking about the benefits of alcohol, it's really just to kind of to sit in a corrective space alongside of this, you know, 20 shelves of books about alcoholism and the dangers of alcohol. Um, we, we do need a little bit of a counterbalance looking at the positive functions. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, have any of the big beer or wine companies uh, invited you and offered you fat honorarium to come keynote their annual conferences or something? And yes. if so, have you accepted <laughs> you have any qualms about yes. take, yeah. taking money from them or not? Yeah, I'm actually doing my first one like that um, in October uh, at the uh, World World Beverage Association. I think it's a beer uh, Uh producers organization. And I don't feel bad at all because I I think that actually, I think they need help and they should get help. Um, I think they've been in this defensive crouch where, you know, they've kind of accepted this story that they're peddling something that's no different from nicotine or pornography or cocaine and, you know, accepted, yeah, you know, it's bad and, but it's a vice that people want. And so, and I don't think they have to be so defensive. I, I actually, especially beer makers, because you know, mm-hmm. beer is is the best, the safest form of alcohol. So this is a case where my interests intellectually kind of overlap with the interests of an industry. I think we need to change the the public discourse on this. So yeah, I am. Yeah. I'm actually doing my first big um, address to an industry organization, and I think the beverage industry is slowly waking up to my book and realizing, oh, here's some positive arguments for alcohol. And I don't see any problem with with talking to them about it because I, I believe in it personally. 
Well, yeah. Edward, listen, I, I think your book was wonderful. As I said, there Thanks. are a few books I've enjoyed reading more and prepping for this thing. I think the, the book is important culturally. I hope it really does get out there. I saw you tweeting recently. It just been uh, translated into Korean. So hopefully this has a, a really substantial global reach. And, uh, you know, I hope you don't leave the field because uh, you're really saying something that's very important. So thank you ever so much for writing this and for taking the time to talk with me and with and our listeners on Psychoactive. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Boris Jordan, founder and head of Cureleaf, one of the world's biggest marijuana businesses. This is my fifth company I've built, and my formula has always never build a company to sell it. Build a company to compete and be best in class, and that's what I'm doing. And I hope I'm successful, but I can tell you one thing. I'm not building Cureleaf to sell it to a, a tobacco company. I'm building Cureleaf to be competitive in this world. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Dot com slash compatibility.